Welcome to the Harwood Hustle powered by PGC Basketball. We believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before. In today's episode, TJ is joined by Mono Watsa, president of PGC Basketball, and a special guest, Ken Friedman, who shares the true and untold story of Willie Cooper. In 1964, they made history together in the North Carolina men's basketball program. Willie was the first black student athlete to break the color line in the Tar Hill program, and his story is an honor to share with you all on the Harwood Hustle. Before we start, a quick word from PGC Basketball. Coaches, we're excited to let you know registration is officially open for our PGC summer camps. If you want your team to be the smartest players on the court, there's no other place for them to be this summer. Don't settle for unnecessary turnovers, a lack of playmaking, and a lack of leadership next season. A week at PGC for two or three of your players could be the difference between a mediocre season and winning a championship. Spots will fill fast, so have your players find a camp at pgcbasketball.com. Welcome to the Hardwood Hustle. We have a very, very special episode for you today. In light of Black History Month, we've got a story that had been told at many PGC sessions from far away and coaches and campers alike were all just kind of blown away by this story. And it's a story that we felt needed to be told. And this is the perfect time to tell it. So we have special guests with us today, actually two special guests. You're very familiar with Mana Watsa, the owner and president of PGC and a multi-time guest here with us on the Hardwood Hustle. And his good friend, the legend Ken Friedman, who I've heard stories about for years and years of all the wonderful things he's done. And this story, he plays a role in as well. And we are excited to tell you this story. Mono, I'm going to let you introduce Ken and and go ahead and uh, take us into the story here. Thanks, TJ. It's great to be on the podcast with you today. And it is my honor to introduce a very dear friend and longtime member of our PGC family. In fact, at one point in time, prior to his retirement, he served as our director of marketing Ken Friedman. And Ken has an incredible story to share with all of us today. As I was thinking of ways that we at PGC could honor Black History Month, I thought back to Ken's story, one that he had shared with me many, many years ago. And I realized we had never shared his story publicly. And I thought it would just be uh, riveting for our our listeners to be able to hear and enjoy and take in and it's inspiring, challenging, uplifting. I just uh, can't say enough about what you're about to hear uh, coaches. So without further ado, I'm not going to give any uh, biographical information about Ken. His story will tell it all. The one thing I can tell you is he has been a longtime mentor and guru of mine in branding, marketing, and all things basketball related. So without further ado, let's welcome Ken Friedman. Thank you so much, Mono. And Mono's right, we go back a long time. The only thing, Mono, not a guru. (laughs) (laughs) I I do not want anyone to ever think of me as, as a guru. But I mean, everything else you said was true. <laughs> you always know a, t- a guru, TJ, when uh, they they don't want to embrace the fact that they are a guru to many. That's that's usually the telltale sign that they are a guru. You know, Ken, unfortunately, that's how I would have described you from everything I've heard from Mono and Dino over the years. So I guess, you know, you might not like the title, but it's kind of fitting. I'm okay with it. It's fine. And uh, I'm particularly glad this, this story has never literally been told publicly ever. 
not in its true form, which is what you're going to hear today. And there's reasons for that, which I'll get into as the story unfolds. But I can't think of a better place to be telling the story, the, the true story of what happened than PGC because of everything that PGC itself stands for, the integrity, the high quality, the diversity, the openness, you know, the training of young people to be good human beings, far and above basketball, far beyond basketball. So I'm really happy to be doing this and in particularly very happy to be doing this in this particular setting. So this story is about a young person, 18 year old basketball player and his name, you'll never have heard of him, that's for sure. His name was Willie Cooper. And it's a story about breaking what was called the color line, in quotes, the color line in the southeastern United States. Now, with the color line being that at that time, which would have been the early 60s, there were no black athletes in the southeastern United States, at least none that were playing for what would be called the predominantly white universities. You know, the big schools, the name schools. Hadn't happened. That's part of the story. There has been a version of this story that's been told for years. And that version, the version of the story that's in, in variations of the story, because, it's, well, you'll see in a moment, is that Dean Smith, legendary coach for the University of North Carolina, extraordinarily successful, and someone who was, in fact, very committed to seeing this so-called color line being broken down, for seeing that racial barrier removed. His father, Dean's father, actually had done just that in the state of Kansas when Dean himself was a high school student. He was a high school coach, and he had first black player in you know, any predominantly white high school in the state of Kansas. So this was something that was in Dean Smith's genes, we could say. And the story that's been told is that Dean went down to tiny little Elm City, North Carolina, which I always laugh when I say it's not city is quite an exaggeration. In fact, town would be an exaggeration. When I first went down there the first time, there wasn't, it's not even a store. It's not, not a post office not a 7-Eleven, nothing. It's just a farm community. There's a sign, it says Elm City. You drive for a few minutes and then there's another sign that says you're leaving Elm City, that's it. And Dean, according to the story, went down there to see Willie Cooper's coach, very successful coach at a tiny little Douglas High School, all black high school, of course, because all the high schools where black students were attending in those days were all black. His name was Harvey Reed. And he asked Harvey, who had been a very successful high school coach, do you have any players that would be both good enough and also eligible, I'll, tell, I'll explain that part later, to play at the University of North Carolina? And Harvey Reed said, well, in fact, there is this player, and he has the grades, he has the college board scores, and he's got a lot of potential. Um, and then Dean said, well, I can't give him a scholarship the first year. He'll have to prove himself. But he can come down, play for what was called the freshman team. In those days, it's funny now because, you know, after the first year, all these players go to the NBA. But in those days, they had freshmen. You could not play on the varsity your freshman year. You had to play for what was called the freshman team. It was a whole separate team. And 
you know, if you do okay there, um, then perhaps next year you try out for the varsity and then we could give you a scholarship. So according to that version of the story, Willie Cooper came to the University of North Carolina with the full support of the basketball program and the university. Everything was prearranged for his success. And it's a great story, very heartwarming. It's been repeated many times, many different versions over the years, but there's only one problem. It's not true. <laughs> it didn't happen that way at all. I'm not sure, we're not sure. We've tried to find out where that story originated. It's been in books, it's been in magazines, it's been on the internet, it's been in newspapers. I mean, we know that Dean Smith himself didn't originate it, he wouldn't do that. We think it was probably some ambitious member of the UNC uh, publicity team or something, we don't know. But the main point is that the story is not true. That's not how it happened. Well, so what? Why does it matter? I mean, it's 50 years ago, literally 50 years ago. Why go to the trouble? Why bother now, 50 years later, to try to set the record straight after all these years. And the reason is, is because that version about what happened completely diminishes, uh, doesn't really tell what Willie Cooper actually went through. 18 year old kid arrives on the campus of the University of North Carolina I think there were 6,000 students at the time, maybe 40,000 now, maybe 18 black students out of the whole student body. The courage that he displayed, that story has never been told. Finally, just in the, literally in the last two years, maybe two and a half years, there's been some recognition of what he accomplished. He's received in the last couple of years two what they called two different trailblazer awards. One from AT&T, I hope I have the right phone company. I think it was AT&T. Gave him, actually he invited me to come down for it, went into the governor's mansion. And then one actually, you know, on the basketball court in the Dean Smith Center in Chapel Hill just last year, where he received what they called the trailblazer award for being the person that broke the color line, the famous color line. But still, the true story has never been told, never been fully appreciated. Just, oh, here's the guy who broke the color line, which is great. But he's never really been acknowledged for the person that he was. This 18-year-old kid, pretty much the only support that he had there was me. And the person that he was, and for that matter, is, and I talked to Willie a couple of days ago, and he said, you know, I'd like this story to be told. And he knows about PGC from me over the years. So he's very happy, very happy this is taking place. So next question one could ask is, well, how, how did I come to be involved? I mean, I wasn't a basketball player. I mean, I tried, <laughs> but I wasn't good enough to play at UNC. Grew up in New Jersey, kind of kid who was frequently in trouble, and basketball nut you know, loved basketball, as many people did where I grew up. And as this 11, 12-year-old nut, I would read in the newspapers about a coach 
in New York City whose name was Frank McGuire in the Hall of Fame, very famous, but different generation to say the least. And at that time, Coach McGuire was coaching at St. John's University, very successful. And one of the great stories about Coach McGuire was that he brought in the very first black player ever to play at St. John's, whose name was Solly Walker. And what happened was, so Solly Walker, I think was the sixth man on the team, you know, super sub, I guess you could call it, or something like that. And St. John's had a basketball game scheduled with the University of Kentucky, which was another big basketball power, I mean, in those days and now. And it offered up very great coach, successful coach from Kentucky, called Coach McGuire and said, you know, I heard you have a black player on the team. Well, you can't bring him to Kentucky to play in this game. That's completely out of the question. And Coach McGuire, we'd have to know him, he's pretty cool cucumber, as they say, said, well, if he's not coming, we're not coming. Well, that would have caused a national stir. So finally, Rupp warned him, it's not going to be pretty, but if you insist. So they brought him down there. And then, you know, all the typical stuff you could see in the movies, but it actually happened. Went to the hotel. They wouldn't let Sally Walker check in. So they all had to go find a hotel that would take you know, black guests, they go to the gym for the entire 40 minutes of the game. You know, they're screaming, yelling, derogatory remarks coming out of the stands. And these are high college kids, understandably shaken up, hostile crowd, and they lost by 40 points. But something happened, which was that a few months later, just by chance, seemingly, St. John's of Kentucky met in the final game of the Eastern Regionals, not in Kentucky, you know, somewhere in the Northeast. You know, with a trip to the Final Four on the line, well, of course, Kentucky was heavily favored because they'd beaten St. John so badly the first time they played, but the kids were really inspired. And in fact, they won that game, went to the Final Four. And I'd read, I'd followed this story, you know, 11, 12 year old kid, you know, really closely. And I'd never met Coach McGuire, of course, but I admired him so tremendously for what he'd done. Now, fast forward, 1957, Frank McGuire is coaching at the University of North Carolina. And he's right in the midst of what turned out to be an undefeated season, 32-0, still the best record any college team has ever compiled, the best, 32-0. And in the final game of the NCAAs, they win in triple overtime against Kansas, featuring Will Chamberlain in triple overtime. Unheard of. So, you know, I haven't heard of this guy, Frank McGuire, for years. He was my idol, even though I never met him. So I'm a senior in high school. My cousin was attending UNC, coincidence. And I decided to go for a visit. And while I was down there, brazen 16-year-old kid that I was. I marched myself into the basketball office and Coach McGuire is in there being interviewed because they're, you know, they haven't lost a game all year, right? Being interviewed by all these people from the media. And I march in and say, Coach, you know, I'm Kenny Friedman. I'm from New Jersey. So I thought you'd like to meet me because I'm from New Jersey, right? So obviously you wouldn't want to meet me. He's from New York. <laughs> well, anyway, he had good sense of humor, fortunately, to say the least. 
And we just hit it off. I mean, to this day, I don't know what it was, but from the first two minutes we met, he became, you know, a very overused phrase, like a second father to me. Just was so wonderful to me. And I had such tremendous love and respect for him. And, and he, from the moment I arrived on campus, oh, he said, you're coming here. Forget about your other visits. You're not going anywhere else. You're coming here. And I'm not a basketball player, right? But you're coming here. So I get there, I go in, he remembers me completely and immediately takes me into his family. His basketball family, he says, you're going to be with the basketball team. I'll teach you to be, because I thought I wanted to be a coach at that point. And you're going to be an apprentice coach is what he called it, an associate coach. And he just took me under his wing. Like I'd be at practice every day. And after every game, you know, we'd watch the film together. He'd point out things to me, all that kind of stuff. So I was sort of as though I was in training to be a coach, but basically we just were really close. After four years of that, he decides for various reasons to leave Chapel Hill and go to the NBA to coach Philadelphia, starring, as fate would have it, Will Chamberlain himself. And that was the year when Coach McGuire coached him that Wilt averaged 50 points a game and scored the 100 points in one game that he's so famous for. And when Coach McGuire left, his assistant, whose name was Dean Smith, got the head coaching job with Coach McGuire's help, I think. He was only 33 years old. And I mention that because I think it's actually an important part of the story, as you'll see. So I thought, well, that's it. I'm done with that. You know, Coach McGuire left. I was in graduate school by then. But about a week after practice started, my phone rings. And it's Coach McGuire calling me from Philadelphia. And he says to me, Dean called me today. Dean Smith called me today. And, you know, he's having a, they're having a bit of trouble with the transition. I mean, Coach McGuire had recruited every one of the players, you know, because remember, freshmen couldn't play varsity. And they loved him and were very disappointed when he left. And Dean Smith told Coach McGuire, you know, we're just – it's a little bit awkward sometimes. And I think if you could talk to Kenny and we could have him around, yeah, that'd just be some extra continuity. He, he thought that would be a good thing. Well, I was thrilled. I mean, I had no idea he would want me to do that. So you know, I had an appointment next day, went to the office, we made all the arrangements. And for, I think the next four years, I was with the team constantly, no official position, nothing, but not the same relationship I have with Coach McGuire, but a good relationship, a good, solid relationship. And in addition, I respected Coach Smith because I knew one thing about him. I knew that he shared my enthusiasm and Coach McGuire's enthusiasm for seeing the racial barriers come down. I mean, I knew he was really sincere about that. He wanted that to happen. But there was an obstacle which is maybe even a bit difficult to explain these days. I'm sure everybody knows what the SAT tests are, college board scores. Well, it's long been known, even today, I think, still, that the college board, the SAT testing system is racially biased. Not necessarily deliberately, it's just sort of geared towards white middle-class students. Anybody that goes on Google and just writes SATs, racially biased, you'll find 50 articles about it. It's a well-known 
phenomenon. And what had happened was the Atlantic Coast Conference was taking advantage of this problem with the SAT test. You know, these schools were in South Carolina, Clemson, South Carolina, four schools in North Carolina, UNC, Duke, Wake Forest, North Carolina State, University of Virginia, and then University of Maryland, which was, you know, sort of on the cusp between the North and the South. They wanted to keep in those, they wanted to keep the program segregated, whoever they were. And so what they did was they said, you have to have a certain school. I don't care if you're first in your class. I don't care how many awards you've gotten, how many extracurricular activities, things that would normally matter. If you don't have a certain SAT score, you cannot play athletics in one of our schools, period. Very totally arbitrary. Well, again, this really worked against black student athletes, especially when you're thinking about a black student athlete from a very small, all black Southern high school. So what you would have had to find to bring, what Coach Smith or anyone else would have had to find is one, a player who was good enough, which, you know, that was probably doable. Two, a player that had good grades, also doable. Three, a player that had this college board score. That was hard. It was very hard to find because you also, even if you found one, just like any other recruit, they had to want to go to the University of North Carolina. It's not just a slam dunk. Uh, you know, other schools would be recruiting them if they were that good. And not only that, but, you know, they're, they're coming there knowing they're going to take on the stress, and there was stress, to be the first player that was breaking this very solid color line. So it wasn't easy. Coach Smith thought he had a couple of candidates, and each time they didn't have the college board. Lou Hudson, some of you may remember, and he wanted to go there, but he didn't have the college board score. And Coach Smith and I used to talk about this, I'd say semi-frequently, because we we're both really into it, and he lived right around the corner from me. At the same time, while I was in graduate school, I got involved in the civil rights movement in Chapel Hill. And what that meant at that time was sit-ins, you guys all know the history. Uh, Chapel Hill was pretty liberal, actually. So we'd all go sit down on the sidewalk in front of one of the restaurants that wouldn't allow black people to eat there, maybe in front of a drugstore that had a soda fountain that was segregated. The police would come, pick us up, take us to jail for, let's say, an hour or two and tell us to go home. I mean, they never pressed any charges. They didn't want to, really. And what happened was that in the court, I, I guess you could say I became one of the leaders, maybe even the leader of the civil rights movement in Chapel Hill. During that time, Martin Luther King Jr., I get a phone call that Martin Luther King is going to be in Chapel Hill tomorrow. I didn't know anything about that. And he wants to see you. And I'm like, what? He wants, I mean, he's coming to Chapel Hill to see you. I have no clue what's going on. So we end up one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of us, in the minister's office in the local black church. And it turns out that what happened was someone had spoken to him. You know, cheese, I had to bring in dinner. He said, bring in dinner, whatever you want. Cheeseburgers, <laughs> French fries, grilled onions, a lot of ketchup. I like ketchup. Somebody had spoken to him about me. And he, what he wanted was he wanted me to leave Chapel Hill and come work with him 
on a regional basis, be in charge of, I don't even remember, be in charge of a region or something. So it's funny because I was a basketball recruiter and here I, he was recruiting me. And I kept saying, I can't do that. Why? Why couldn't I? Because I was very committed to the, to, you know, to what we were trying to do. I had a family. I had one very small daughter and another, my wife was pregnant, which turned out to be another daughter. I was in graduate school and doing well. But also, which I gradually revealed to him, I wanted to break the color line in UNC basketball. I mean, people were, and I try, explained to him, I mean, people are so fanatical. Many of you who've ever been to a game in Chapel Hill, you know about this. They're out of their minds. I mean, it, it almost sort of turned me off sometimes. You know, these 60-year-old guys running around and their life depends on whether UNC wins that basketball game tomorrow night, seemingly. But I thought that somehow there'd be a way we could pull this off and that people were so consumed with UNC basketball that if we could do that, that that would accomplish more even than all the sit-ins and the protests, you know, the whole thing. And it would break the color line for the entire section of the country. So he sort of debated with me a little. He was wonderful. He sort of debated with me a tiny bit, but he was a great listener. And as I went on and told him my reasoning, he sort of started to get into it. He said, you know, finally, he said, you know, because he's obvious, I'm very stubborn. I'm sure he was too, but I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> he said, you know, maybe you've got something there. Why don't you give it a try? It's after two and a half hours, by the way. I mean, one thing that came out of that was March on Washington was later that year. I actually, I told Mono this last week. I had a seat in the fourth row at the famous I Have a Dream speech. Mono <laughs> went online and <laughs> looked at the pictures. You know, there was 100,000 people there, maybe 200,000. Mono's trying to find me in the crowd, but anyway, obviously he didn't succeed. So I was very inspired. Martin Luther King thinks this is, could be a good idea, but still had to find the right player. And that player, again, had to not only be good enough to play basketball there, he had to all those other things. You have to have the SAT scores, the grades, had to want to come there all out. And just around that time, maybe about a month later, this law student, name was Reggie Fountain, tempted to say that with a Southern accent, not that it would be very good, but Reggie was from a little rural area in North Carolina, right near this little place, town called Elm City. And the high school there was called Douglas High School. That's the black high school. All black high school played only other all black schools. And they had won a couple of state championships. They'd won 76 straight games at that time. And their best player was a player named Willie Cooper. And Reggie Fountain, the law student, proceeds to tell me he's first in his class. And lo and behold, he had the required SAT score. Now, to get a picture of this, no student from that high school had ever attended a predominantly white college or university. None. And I'm like, wow, first in his class. Reggie thought he was really good. Reggie didn't know a lot of basketball, but he was a big fan. But who knows, right? Dream come true for me. But only for a moment, because I was so excited. The first thing I did was I went to talk to Coach Smith, of course, because I knew he shared this. You know, he, want, he wanted to do this too. And he said, Kenny, 
You know I want to do this. We've talked about it many times. But the first black player has got to be a superstar. That's the exact phrase he used. I'm like, coach, a superstar? Well, what do you mean by a superstar? Well, he has to be as good as Bobby Lewis. Now, again, you guys wouldn't remember that name, but Bobby Lewis, who was a freshman at that time, was averaging, no joke, 36 points per game for the freshman team. He's probably the best freshman in the country. And you have to understand the situation that Dean Smith was in. I mean, it's funny to tell this now because later on he becomes a famous coach who won more games at one point, had won more games than anybody in NCAA history. But at that point, he'd only been coaching, varsity coach for three years or so. And they hadn't done that great. And that's okay. You know, 50-50 sort of in that territory. Maybe he had one sort of good year and then the next year didn't do very well. Well, you know, for a lot of schools, that would be okay but not at the University of North Carolina. I mean, particularly when you're following someone like Frank McGuire, who had won the national championship, been undefeated, been coach of the year, ace recruiter, um, top three and four in the country every single year. And the alumni who were fanatical, as I said, are calling, they wanted to get rid of Dean Smith. I mean, and that sounds crazy again, given what he accomplished over the long, in fact, one night we went to play Wake Forest. You know, I'm on the bus with the team. It's about an hour and a half away. And we lost. And as we did frequently that year. And as we're pulling up to the gym, we, we see a fire blazing. The students, some students, had hung an effigy. Had hung Dean Smith in effigy. So he was under, and remember, he's only 33 years old. He's under an enormous amount of pressure. I mean, alumni were coming to me because they knew me from when Coach McGuire was there, trying to get dirt on Coach Smith to help them get him fired, which, of course, there wasn't any, first of all. And even if there had been, I wouldn't have told them. And Dean went on to say to me, Kenny, if he's not a superstar, if this doesn't work, you, you know what's going on. They're after me. I'll be gone. He was right. And not only that, but the person that replaces me might not be as open to breaking the color line as I am. And then he said, and also, the students will never accept a black player unless he's a superstar. That line got repeated frequently over the next months. Students will never accept a black player unless he's as good as Bobby Lewis. Well, I'm completely deflated. I was so excited, come all the way down, but still determined to go down there and take a look. I mean, you never know, right? So got Reggie Fountain. We drove, it's, you know, he was from that area. He drove down. In fact, his father was a U.S. congressman from that area. Not his father, his uncle. And we go into this gym, this tiny little high school, and we're the only white people in the gym. You know, all, every head, when we walked in, every head turns. And I'm watching the game, and understandably, he knows we're there. He's, he's nervous. But I'm watching him, and I can sort of judge what he's like beyond the nervousness. And he's a good prospect. I mean, good enough. I, I would have thought good enough for a scholarship. You know, maybe he's not going to be a starter. Who knows? But with some coaching, and his coach was actually a great coach. But they were, in, for example, in really great physical condition, all the players. And they played really hard. But in terms of 
you know, like the nuances of basketball, maybe not that much. Not, but one thing that was clear, you know, his shot was kind of average. He was playing, you know, TJ, you guys don't understand. He was playing front court. He's only 6'1". Hadn't really worked on any backcourt skills. His ball handling was, I'd say, below average. He needed a lot of work, but definitely not a superstar. And well, well, that's it. That's that. But there's a lot of buts in the story. Then what happened was they come up and introduce themselves. You know, we introduced ourselves. He already knew Reggie and um, invited to come over to, to his house to meet his parents after the game. So, of course, we went and went. And they blew my mind. Uh, it's the only way I can think to say it. The whole family and Willie Cooper himself just completely blew my mind by the kind of human beings that they were. And he had a sister that was still living at home. I couldn't quite understand, because she was, seemed at least about 20 years older than he was. Her name was Amanda. And she took me aside and told me what Willie's background. Turns out he was not that family's biological child. He was what's called a foster child, not even adopted. And what had happened was that his father was much older than his mother, 20 years or so. World War I veteran, I think had been wounded in World War I. I'm not totally sure of that, but I think that's right. And what had happened, Willie, so his, his father had died, as far as I recall, I think his father had died, and his mother became really ill and had to be in the hospital. And Willie was seven or eight years old, is out on the streets. I don't mean living out on the streets, but he's out on, he's just wandering around the streets, doing whatever he wants, stealing, stealing food. And of course, you know, social services picked him up and found him a foster family, the family that I was, you know, meeting that very night. Martha and Kester Mitchell, and they were farmers. And they had had 10 children, you know, maybe six boys, let's say. And every one of those boys had to get up every morning and work the fields with their father and after school. So the reason that they brought Willie in as a foster child was because all of their biological children were gone. They'd all grown up. Every one of them had gone to university. All, all, every one of them had gone to an all-black university, but they'd all gone to University, I say that because the family was really big on education. That, that's how they thought things could change. And their children had to study, period. And the father needed help in the fields and there, wasn't, there weren't any children home anymore. So the reason they brought Willie in, and it's gonna be a strong kid, you could say, was to work the fields. But because of their dedication to education, that was a must. And particularly for Amanda, his sister, because his sister was actually a teacher in the local school system. And she cracked the whip. You know, she made Willie study. If he didn't do his homework, no TV. You know, if you don't do your homework, you can't play sports. So he started to apply himself and then started to get really good grades. And he found that he was actually enjoying it, enjoying the success. And had risen at that point to be first in his class. And Amanda, the sister's telling me about his schedule. It's unbelievable. He's getting up at 4.30 in the morning, 
working in the fields for, let's say, a couple of hours. I mean, back-breaking work. You know, the work that the, they, without doubt, have machines to do these days. This was 50 years ago, remember? More. Would run home, run to school to be done school on time, run about a mile and a half. Maybe this is why these kids were in such good shape, because they were all, all of them were doing this. Run home after school, work the fields till it got dark, you know, make quick dinner, run back to school for basketball practice, run home, and you know, had to do his homework, go to bed, do the same thing the next day. So and then I talked to Willie, and I found out, yes, he loved basketball, and he really wanted to play. And yes, he was willing to take on the role of being the person that broke the color line, which is a stressful thing for an 18-year-old kid, thinking that they're going to be walking into a host potentially hostile environment. But even more important to him, he told me, and he meant it, was the education. Remember, this family's approach to education was everything to them. And he felt that if he could get a degree from a school like the University of North Carolina, it would change his life. It would open so many doors for him. I think, you know, somewhat he still saw himself as a foster child, although the family that the Mitchells, their name was, loved him every bit as much as they could have ever loved their own biological child, but there was still, you know, some insecurity. And I think he felt, well, I know he felt, he told me, that this could be his insurance policy. A degree from a school like North Carolina would be a life changer. And meanwhile, I'm remembering what Coach Smith told me. He's got to be a superstar. He's got to be a superstar. But I think I'll go back to Chapel Hill and I'll talk to Coach Smith and I'll tell him what this kid is like. You know, we'll make it happen. That's my general attitude, right? So I did. I told him, totally honest about his strong points and maybe some of his weak points as a player. But then I said, Coach, this is exactly the kind of kid you always want on your basketball team. He's a good student. He's a great kid. He's in-state, which was a plus. But still, the answer was no. Can't do it. It's too risky. It could backfire. And, you know, maybe it, it can make the whole thing more difficult in the long run. And the students will never accept it unless he's a superstar. So then, really, truly, hardest phone call of my entire life. Because I had to call Willie Cooper. And, you know, they didn't have the money to send him to UNC. And I had to tell him, Willie, they, they, won't, they can't do it. And the disappointment in his voice, you know, this young person, I just broke my heart. And I told him, you know, I'm going to find a way. Again, my optimism, her wife teases me about it. I'm going to find a way. Which was crazy, because I had no idea how I could find a way. But then... Again, as things happened this way with him. One of the basketball players was dating a secretary that worked in the in the scholarship office. And I knew her because of because of their relationship. And she said to me, Kenny, tell me everything you know about him. So I did. She calls me back a day or two later and says, You won't believe it. I found him a full scholarship. Everything, everything a basketball scholarship would give him everything. It's all in there. How did you do that? His father's a World War veteran. Maybe he was wounded. I, that's the part I can't remember. But in any case, there were actually full scholarships available for the children of World War veterans. Well, at that time, 
you know, if you're a World War One veteran, you were up there in age. But as I said, his father was quite a bit older than his mother. So now, very different phone call. I got to make one of the happiest of my life. Guess what? There's a scholarship. You can come. And he's ecstatic, of course. So I said, here's, here's what we'll do. You know, go ahead, fill out all the papers. Come to summer school. Scholarship will cover everything, which it did. And we'll do a couple of things. A couple of classes. Bring your English skills up a bit from high school. Take one class, one regular class. You know, it's a leap from a school like his, any school to college, as you guys know. And at the same time, we'll work out every day, the two of us. And I'll try to help you improve in basketball, get some of those skills that need improving, get them up there. Long story short, we did it. Found a little junior high school outside of Chapel Hill that had an outdoor court, just one basket. And we went out there Monday to Friday, every day for six weeks, two hours at a time. Some of the players from the team who were into it came out and helped, particularly Donnie Walsh. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but was the president and general manager of the Indiana Pacers for many, many years and the New York Knicks. And um, a player named Billy Galantai, who you wouldn't know, but was a wonderful person. So that went really well. You know, we worked on his shooting, worked on one-on-one -on -one moves, defensive stance, stuff that we could just do with two people or three people. You know, it wasn't all easy because, for example, he was taking a history class and he got really upset because he got a D on his first test. Now, I was a teaching assistant. I was in grad school. I was a teaching assistant in the history program. So he brought me the paper and I there's no way this is a D. It's at least a B. It might even be an A. So he went to the teacher very politely and the teacher said, you people, you know, you people are trying to move too fast. And, you know, you've got, you should know your place. There's some horrible stuff like that. Well, I went to my advisor who happened to be head of the department and he read the paper. He was furious. And he went to this guy, whoever he was, and no, that's not okay. Read him the riot act. He ended up, got to be in the class for the summer. And at the end of the summer, he was a much better player than when he started. So now he arrives in Chapel Hill and thinks some of these things I didn't even know till later. First night he was there, I invite a bunch of members of the basketball team over, barbecue for everybody. Years later, he told me that was the first time he'd ever eaten a meal with a white person his entire life. He had never played a basketball game, not even a pickup game, you know, three on three with a white person. I did, he didn't tell me that then. He told me many years later. So I'm, hey, you know, we're in pretty good shape here. And then the freshman coach, so there was a coach for the freshman team who was also an assistant for the varsity team. And I knew this. I knew him for, I really liked him a lot. I knew him for several years. But he had a surprise for me. He walks up to me one day in the gym, and you guys will have to excuse my language, and people who end up listening to this, excuse my language. He says, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not going to have any blankety-blank niggers on my basketball team. Well, you know. And he's the coach. And I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, I've brought Willie here, and he's got no way. He's not going to happen. 
I didn't tell Willie because I knew with all the pressure he was under, and any, it would just be too much to think that he's in there having a fight against the coach's racial attitude at the same time. That year, Coach Smith, you know, things were starting to roll for him. He'd recruited yet another superstar, and this guy was really good. And three other recruits would all do respect wherever they are. They weren't that good. <laughs> and as far as I could tell, maybe I was a bit prejudiced, but I don't think that prejudiced. Willie was definitely had more potential as a player than any of the other three. Now, the superstar guy, no way. I mean, that guy went on to be two-time first-team All-American, two-time player of the year in the Atlantic Coast Conference, really good professional career. But other than that, as far as I could tell, he's the best player trying out for the freshman team. But, you know, if the coach says, I'm going to cut you no matter what, <laughs> that's not very promising. So the tryouts started, and... I knew what was going on. It was painful. I mean, he was nervous, but he had some really good days. He had some days that weren't as good. And meanwhile, the whole time I know, the coach is going to cut him. It doesn't matter what he does. He's planning to cut him. And he did. He would do things like, coaches never refereed a scrimmage. There'd always be, some, you know, managers. Coach refereed every single scrimmage for two weeks. And in two weeks, Willie Cooper never took a free throw. And any time he came anywhere near anybody, especially the superstar, whistle would blow, it's a foul. And you know, he'd been trained to play really tough in-your-face defense. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. So, you know, I'm getting more and more down, more and more down. You know, it's not like he's lighting it up every day. Because, again, offense wasn't a strong suit yet in any case. And I could see it coming, you know, my New Jersey mind, right? I know how he's going to do this. He's going to say, well, I had to keep this guy because we needed another shooter out there. This guy's 6'8", and we don't have any size. So again, they didn't. In other words, I could think of a reason why there were six other guys aside from the scholarship guys that he would, well, this is why I had to keep them. And geez, I feel really bad, but I had to cut him. And I mean, I, and he would say things, oh, that guy's a really good shooter, which he wasn't that good, but he was maybe a little better than Willie Shooter. Anyway, I'm waiting for the, you know, the sword to come down. So kind of despondent, actually. So it comes down to the last, very last day of tryouts. And there's a tiny little article, I mean, literally that big, in what was called the Daily Tar Heel, you know, the Daily Student Newspaper. It was good, good paper. And what it said was, last day of freshman tryouts today, a Negro, it says, quote unquote, Willie Cooper from Elm City is still among the candidates. That's all it said. It was a whole article. So, you know, sort of depressed, honestly. I head to the gym because I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to go in there and watch, watch it happen. And as I'm walking up to the gym, I hear a noise that's really familiar, like sort of a hum. But I can't figure out what it could be. And I walk through the doors onto the court and the place is packed. Now packed, I should say, the gym sat about 5,000, I remember this is 50 years ago, about 5,000 spectators and one whole side of the gym. So maybe 23, 24, 2,500 people filled, packed all on the one side of the gym, students. White students, obviously, because almost all the students were white students. And had come there for one reason, to root 
for Willie Cooper. So there goes this myth about the students won't accept, right? But the coach still had a trick up his sleeve. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do today. So maybe there were 18 candidates left, 10 or 12 spots. I can't remember. Here's what we're going to do. This is all we're going to do today. We're going to break you guys up. and We're going to have one-on-one -on -one games. So let's say if there were 18 candidates, nine one-on-one -on -one games. And I know right away. Well, guess who he's going to be matched up with? Of course, the All-American, the superstar, 35-point a game, you know, second best player in the country, a senior in high school. And, and the, the way it was going to work is each guy would get five chances, you know. So first one person would get the ball five times, try to score, and then the other. And, I mean, this guy, the superstar, I'm not saying his name deliberately because I don't want to be easy enough to figure out for any UNC fan probably knows who he is already. You, you can't stop him one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, nobody could, nobody in college. Um, so he has the ball first, and at least to me, predictably, even though Willie's playing really good defense, he scores every time. I mean, he would have scored every time. I don't care who you brought in unless, you know, as a pro, he's going to score every time off anybody. Scores five times. Now Willie gets the ball. Now remember, offense was not his forte. But we had spent six weeks, because we had no choice, just the two of us working on one-on-one -on -one moves. Most jab step, jab step series. I don't know what you call it, TJ. I used to call it the jab step or the rocker step. So jab and shoot, jab and go, you know, get low, jab, long step, get to the basket, step in, cut them off, all that good stuff. Jab, come back, rock and go, you know, all the different little tricks. Worked a lot on shooting off the backboard because that skill that I thought players usually didn't have that was helpful. Willie gets the ball and scores all five times. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I would never have expected that to happen. I mean, the courage, especially with 2,500 kids or so in the stands, and with the pressure he was under, he scores all five times. And the place goes nuts. The students, I mean, cheering every time he scored, they're on their feet. You know, it was like a celebration. Well, you know, I still was a little nervous, but look at what he'd done. And with 2,500 witnesses, so to speak, you know? And sure enough, the list came up the next day. He's on it. He made the team. Now, whether Coach Smith intervened, I don't know. But I think the freshman coaches had no choice, really. He'd done so well in front of so many people that you know, just couldn't cut him. That's what I think. But there's still that prejudice, that bias. So the season starts, freshmen have their own games, and he's on the end of the bench, Willie. Literally the end of the bench, the very end of the bench. To me, he's the second best player on the team. Certainly among the top few, but I think second best. First game, I think he put him in with maybe a minute to go. They were ahead by 30 or 40 points. Puts him in with a minute to go. He gets an open jump shot from the corner. Nails it. Place goes crazy. The gym, just like at the tryouts, goes wild. His family is listening to the game on the radio back in Little Elm City. And they were apparently jumping around and pretty excited. 
So <laughs> the next few games, he doesn't get in at all because that looked a little too good, I guess. Didn't get in at all. Maybe for a few seconds, but I don't think so. So now it's time. You know, in those days, season started on December 1st. None of you are old enough to remember that probably, but the season started on December 1st. And so they played, maybe they've been five games. I think he'd gotten into one of them. I go home to New Jersey to see my family, come back. The freshmen have started to practice again, come back to school. And I decide I'm not going to go to the practices every day. Maybe that's putting some extra pressure on the coach. You know, I'm desperately trying to think of anything that can help. And so I don't see the practices. And the next thing that happens, which always happened right after Christmas, we go on a road trip. We always went on this road trip right after Christmas. We, the varsity would go up in a really nice bus, play Virginia and Charlottesville, Virginia, and then bus over to College Park to play Maryland. The freshmen would play Virginia, but they would not go to Maryland. They never did. And the freshmen would only take for that one game seven players. The reason was they had to go in station wagons, okay? Because remember, the bus wasn't going to go back to Chapel Hill. The bus was going to go on to Maryland. So there would be two station wagons. That's it. And with the coach, seven players, a manager, and equipment, they had they only they could only legitimately they could only take seven players. Well, you know, he's let's say twelfth guy on the team hasn't been getting into a game at all. So I don't even want to watch the freshman game. I would always watch the whole freshman game. I don't even want to watch it, but I have nothing else to do. I wander over there, meaning to the gym, tiny little gym in Charlottesville, Virginia, and come in sort of bummed out. I look out on the court, and Willie's out there playing in the game. I thought, well, what, what happened? Did they decide to bring more players? I look over to the bench. No. There's five players on the court, two on the bench. Um bewildered. I mean, really bewildered. And I'm standing there and he made a basket playing really well. Halftime buzzer. I'm standing there in semi-shock and the coach, the freshman coach, the redneck who said that horrible thing and clearly, you know, did everything he could to prevent him from Willie from being on the team comes walking over to me and says, and I quote, Kenny, I owe both of you an apology. He has to be one of the nicest human beings I have ever met in my entire life. That's what happened. And you know, I could say all sorts of things, but somehow other than this goodness, I don't know any other word for it that would be better, that Willie Cooper exuded somehow had connected with him. And you know, the rest of the season, Everything was fine, basically. In fact, they went, you know, they didn't go on to Maryland again. They went back to Chapel Hill after the game. And again, just like if you saw Giant or one of those movies, they go into a restaurant, the whole team, to, to have a meal. And the owner says, well, you guys can eat here, but he can't eat here. And the coach, this coach who said that stuff said, if he can't eat here, None of us are in here and walks out for the whole team. 
So, you know, this remarkable turnaround to me, you know, it's one of the great parts of the story. Well, you know, that's really, in a certain sense, the climax of the story. But what happened afterwards, somewhat briefly, end of the season, Atlantic Coast Conference Tournament, Coach McGuire's there. And he, at that time, had stopped coaching in the pros. Coach McGuire had a son who had cerebral palsy that I'd gotten extremely close to. And he didn't, he, he wanted, his name was Frankie. And he didn't, he wanted Frankie to stay in the South because of the weather, they could swim in the outdoor pool every day, which was really good for him with his handicaps. And he said, Kenny, I have to tell you something, but you can't say anything to anyone. I've been offered the job at the University of South Carolina, which was a terrible basketball program at the time. They literally had won one game that, one game that year, one. And I'm going to take it. And not only that, I want you to come down there with me. I've already, you know, well, taught to the history department. You know, I'd done well in graduate school. Teach history, work with the team, just like old times, so to speak. I said, coach, I've got one year of graduate school. But after that, I mean, I love the guy. You know, you want me to come to, you know, Siberia? I'll be there tomorrow. You know, it's like that with him, right? So he said, well, okay, well, this year, since you have to stay for another year, you know, you start working first now. Four of the ACC teams were in North Carolina and Virginia was within driving distance. So I, I, did, I scouted and I went to look at high school players up in the Northeast, all sorts of stuff. As a result of that, and Coach Smith was, to my surprise, actually was really upset with me that I would leave. Now, I didn't have any official position with the North Carolina team at all, but I don't know. Anyway, what that meant though was that I couldn't come to the UNC practices anymore, rightfully so. You know, I'm working with a team in their very conference. So I couldn't go watch the tryouts, but Larry Brown, I'm sure you guys all know who he is, another Hall of Famer, played for North Carolina, and had met Willie and tried to help him out the previous summer. He had come back to Chapel Hill as an assistant to Dean Smith. And he was calling me every single night to tell me how well he didn't practice that day. And one day he called and said, Kenny, he's going to make the team. I mean, he's probably the best defensive player we have right now. And he scored 18 points in the scrimmage today. And, you know, that's the only thing that was even potentially holding him back. Great. Two days later or so, phone rings again. It's Willie Cooper. And he's a little bit shaky. He says, Kenny, I can't imitate his voice. I don't want to. He said, I got two D's back on tests. So now he's in his business administration. That's his major, his business administration. You know, they're hard. I remember the high school this kid came from. It turned out later, it's almost like a side story. It turned out later, he found out that he had ADD, which just is amazing because he had, you know, high average in the classroom. And he studied harder than anyone. I never saw anyone study like that. That's probably part of the reason because he had to study that hard to do as well as he did. And he said, I got two Ds. And he said, you know how much I love basketball. You know how much you know I want to see the color line broken. But of course, he had effectively already done that by playing for the freshman team. You know, that was done. And Coach Smith, in fact, could go out and recruit black players after that without any particular problem. And he did right away. A superstar, of course. 
And um, he said, you know, education is still the most important thing to me and the most important thing to my family. And I don't think I can do this work and get the grades I want to get and put the time into basketball that I think I'm going to need to put in to do well. But he said, I won't quit unless it's okay with you because of everything, you know, you've done. And I was like, I, I mean, even now these days, sometimes I wonder if I told him the right thing, who knows? I thought, well, well it's got to be up to you, you know? Um, you're the one who's done all this. And I know that education means everything to you. And, you know, remember again that he saw a degree from UNC to be sort of a ticket for him. And in fact, he went into Dean Smith and did quit. Graduated, I wouldn't say graduated with honors, but he had very close to honors and had individual semesters where he was, you know, on the honors list and all that. Which, you know, is really frustrating because I talk about how these stories weren't accurate all these years. One of the stories which really hurt him said the reason he didn't play on the varsity team was because he'd flunked out of the university. Which, I mean, totally untrue. You know, quite the opposite, as I said. He was an excellent student. We graduated. He, he'd been in the ROTC. You guys know what that is in college to try to make a little extra money. Ended up going to Vietnam, worked with IBM for 20, 30 years, equal opportunity officer for the whole Southeast. Earl took early retirement, lives in Chattanooga. Just talked to him two days ago. Started his own business, which has been very successful. Had three children with his wife, whom he met in Chapel Hill. He met his wife in Chapel Hill. And one great thing that happened that helped so to speak, with the pain that he was experiencing from not having played on the varsity is that his daughter, Tanya, was a starter on UNC women's team that won the NCAA championship. And you know, he's remained close to the university, developed a friendship with Coach Smith. He and I are still, I'd say, very close friends. The kind of person he is, two years ago when he received notice that he was going to get this Trailblazers, award from AT&T, which was going to be awarded. It's only the second year they'd ever given these awards. It was going to be given, handed out in the governor's mansion in Raleigh, North Carolina. He calls me and says, I can't accept this award unless you're there. I mean, I was so touched. And he said, don't even think about paying for any of it. I bought your airplane ticket, paying for the whole, you know, everything, everything, every single thing for the whole trip. And basically, that's the story of Willie Cooper. True story of Willie Cooper. What actually happened. Wow. That's, that's an amazing story. And when you think about uh, is it working with my own team, and this year has been particularly an interesting year uh, as we've, we've watched movies together and kind of learned about things that have happened in our history. And you think about, well, some people say, Oh, this was long ago. Things have changed and things have changed and they have gotten better. But you're telling a story that happened not too long ago in your lifetime. And for, for, for Willie, this was his life. He lived this uh, breaking of the color line. And, and uh, you know, I think back at uh, our own, my own basketball program where uh, James Ricks was the first African-American player at our uh, school and his, his um, grandson is now uh, in our program and telling stories similar to this, we just have no idea what it was like. I can only imagine the pressure he was under 
you know, to, you had to succeed in every realm of your life. Because if anything didn't go right, they were going to use it as something against you. And he was just bat- fighting in a really uphill battle. You know, even for example, the very few other black kids who were on campus, I say black because that's the word they were using. Well, actually, they used Negro more than black even then. But there's a lot of pressure from them for him to make the team. You know, they were going to be extraordinarily disappointed if he didn't make the team. Yeah. There was his roommates, you know, all the people he hung out with. So like you said, the pressure from everywhere. And meanwhile, I'm walking around knowing that the freshman coach, so to speak, has it in for him. Although, I mean, to me, that's really one of the most remarkable parts of the story. Whatever he went through, I never talked to him about it afterwards at all. Don't leave it alone. It's good as it is. What he went through... And to have the courage and and the honesty to change, to actually change and do what he did, I don't know. I think it's just really admirable. Uh, Yeah, the climax of the story was absolutely. I mean, when you think about, you know, the the change that has to happen in a heart in any in any of these scenarios, and for uh, if you want to, the the legend of Willie is that he was that man that could change a heart because he was that good of a person and uh, just getting to know him. And, and so, yeah, it's uh, that's really, really a touching story to be able to hear um, how much of Willie and how, and he went on to serve our country in Vietnam and you know, this, the graduating from college, changing and breaking the color line. And wow, that's amazing. And Ken, kudos to you for, you know, being that person. When I talked talk about James Ricks, the first one at, at, at Emmanuel college, it was very similar. It was actually Graham's grandfather that went and picked him up in Memphis and brought him back to school and said, you're going to make it here. You know, and, you know, if, if Willie didn't have somebody in his, his court like you and we all need those people, we all need those people that tell us we can do it. And, and you were that guy that told him he could do it. Well, you know, we also had things too, TJ. I forgot to put this in there, but when he was trying out for the team, my wife calls me or, you know, maybe I came home one day. She'd gotten a phone call. It's the kind of stuff that happened in those days. Threatening, saying they were the KKK, which I doubt they actually were, but might have been. And that if we didn't abandon this project, because people knew I was doing it, yeah, they're going to burn our house down. And not a small little infant daughter, uh, infant, like one or two years old, and another, what turned out to be another girl, four girls eventually, on the way. That's scary stuff. And my wife was the same age as me, and to her credit, her name was Sarah. Well, you know, we haven't been married for many years. To her credit, I, you know, well, what do you want to know? And then she was in love with him by then too. No, we've got to stick this out. We're just going to do it. So there were other, including the guys on the team that came out to help him that summer. You know, Donnie Walsh in particular, who I hope gets into the basketball hall. He just retired finally after all these years, just recently. Hope gets into the basketball hall of fame one of these days he should. Um, you know, they're just always good people. And the students, of course, blew everybody's mind. I mean, I think Coach Smith really believed the students wouldn't accept it. Of course, it turned out they were the first people to accept it. They were totally on board with the whole thing. They didn't care if he was a superstar. Uh, they were rooting for the underdog, so to speak. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know how that all got started? The little, the little article that was in the student paper that day. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it was 
1962 version of going viral. You know, it was just this little article, and like everybody, you know, passed it around, and they all showed up. And not only that, but like I said, they were there to support him, which of course made him feel great. And you know, the next year, it had its effect. All the other schools started bringing in black Afro-American, African-American athletes also. It just, the whole thing was just hanging on by a thread, really, as it turned out. People didn't want to believe that. You know, Coach Smith thought it was still, understandably, thought it was still a big, big, big deal. But it turned out, sort of the whole thing just crumbled after Willie took the first step. That's absolutely amazing, Ken. And for all of our listeners, you know, especially in light of Black History Month, just such a powerful story of hope, of care, of love, of courage, of compassion, of change. And uh, I'm really grateful to have you come on with us on the Hardwood Hustle podcast to, to share this story. And certainly on behalf of TJ and I, on behalf of our entire PGC family, on behalf of all the coaches and those who will listen to this episode, Ken, our hat goes off to you. Our, our hat goes off to, to Willie Cooper and the man he was, the life he lived, the courage he demonstrated. And our hat also goes off to all of those different individuals that you mentioned that, uh, that stood for the cause and that stood behind Willie, including those 2,500 students. And my hat certainly also goes off to that freshman coach who was willing to change. Yeah, really. And, uh, and, and I think this is really a, a story of inspiration for all of us as we think about who can we stand for, what courage can we attempt to live out, and also, what are, what are the areas that we ourselves may need to change? So really, really grateful, Ken, for your willingness to, to join us today. Well, you know, one thing I want to say is I've been wondering for years whether there would be, you know, an opening, uh, a place where this story could be told, the true story, you know, without any punches pulled, the whole thing. And when you called, I thought, this is perfect, because everything that this story no, no joke. Everything that this story is about is what PGC stands for and, and has from the day. You know, what happened was I had been out of basketball for years. This is a quickie. I've been out of basketball for years. And actually what happened was I read a book about the triangle offense and I sort of got fascinated with it. Thought I'd like to try that with the team. And um, I applied to be the coach of the JV team at this tiny little private school down the block. And somehow I gave them sort of an honest resume. And the next thing I knew, the college co university coach, which is also just down the block, Dalhousie, is calling me and, you know, would I be an assistant on the men's team? And I don't need to go into that whole story. But what I'm trying to say is that then I thought, okay, I've got, I've got to bring my knowledge, you know, up to speed. And I went to Pete Newell's camp in Las Vegas, big man's camp. Unbelievable good, unbelievably good. And then I saw, when I was at South Carolina, we had played Duke, of course, every year. 
And their little backcourt player was named Dick DeVenzio. We beat them, I think, every time, but once or twice the whole time he was playing. But I won't make a big deal about that. But anyway, so he had this camp, and I read that there was, you know, a point guard college, and was a woman teaching at Dina Evans. Didn't really know who she was. Should have, but I didn't. And I was going on from Las Vegas, which is where the big man's camp was, to see my daughter in Los Angeles. And I saw that there was a session of the camp, PGC, Point Guard College, just about an hour, hour and a half away from Los Angeles. I thought, you know, I'm going to go down there for half a day. and Maybe I can learn something. So I'm trying to learn, right? And my daughter, bless her heart, says, Dad, I'll drive you down. I'll come back and pick you up, you know, after lunch, if you want. So I go, she leaves. I list, go to the morning session, walk out, get on the phone, call my daughter and say, honey, pick me up at the end of the week. <laughs> I mean, it was so good. I couldn't believe it. And I, I'd been involved in lots of basketball camps during my time with Coach McGuire and Coach Smith. You know, in the summers, I'd love it. I love working with young people, working at the camp. I had never seen anything like this. I just was completely blown away. And then, Dean, at the end of that week, she found out that I did some marketing. She asked me to help out. You know, it's a long story. Met Mono. Met you here, actually, in Halifax, didn't I, Mono? I think so. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, for people listening, if you're wondering about whether I, I would, I'd be at PGC sessions and a parent, usually a dad, would come up and, well, you know, I think my daughter needs, or my son needs to go to a camp where they'll get the famous word, quote, exposure. Going to get exposure. You know, you go to such and such a camp, and they have some of the best players in the country, and then coaches will be there. And I would say, and I mean it, it's true. They don't need exposure. They need to get better. <laughs> if you want to be able to say that your kid played against so-and-so from somewhere in the country that's a five-star player, that's not going to get them a scholarship or, you know, a place in a great school. What will get them a place these days, everybody knows every high school player and nobody's a secret. This exposure thing is a myth. If you're good, they'll find you. And to be good, you've got to get better. You've, and if you want to get better, go to Point Guard, go to PGC. They'll teach you things there that no one, no one else teaches in their camps. And not only that, but for the parents, they teach you how to be one of those good human beings that I was talking about when I was telling the story of Willie Cooper. I mean, really, my daughter, when Dina came here to teach the first PG over March break, like Easter vacation, and my daughter came out to make sure we had the microphone set up properly and all that stuff, she's a whiz. And she sat there during the morning session and she ended up staying for the whole week. My daughter could care less about, I mean, she likes basketball and all, but really to learn how to break a press is not really a major, you know, major thing in her life. But she said the things that they were talking about, she could use software project manager with her team to be a better team leader. And she wanted to hear all of it. So, you know, it's, it's the whole package. Yeah. Very similar to my experience, Ken, you know, Mono invited me down and I, I told my wife that I was going to head down to Emory for, 
you know, a little bit of the morning and listen. And then I had the very similar phone call to my wife and said, Hey, it's going to be a few days. Uh, I'm going to take this whole thing in. And it was blown away the same way uh, that you were. So Ken, I can't thank you enough for taking time to, to tell this story. And I know that coaches that um, hear the story are going to be um, just blown away and encouraged by what has happened and, and, and the impact that it played um, in North Carolina, ACC basketball, basketball in the South and basketball all over the world. And, um, you know, I, there's so many things in that story. And it's to sit on the fourth row of the I Have a Dream speech, you know, that that right there, that's amazing. I just heard the other day that actually a very famous coach that you're probably familiar with, George Raveling, um, who who he actually owns the I Have a Dream speech. What is he really? Yeah, he owns that. And I thought that was that was really um, interesting as, as he's also been a pioneer. But uh, Ken, you've uh, richly uh, blessed us today. I know as a basketball fan, I've just been, oh, wow, just been eating it up and actually very familiar with many of the things you say. We play a team in our, our conference that's actually in Wilson, North Carolina, where you actually go through and where Willie actually lived for a little while. So um, they're just, you know, coaches, for those of you that listen, share this with your players too and share this with your friends and family as uh, this is a story you can just kind of sit around, listen, enjoy, and understand more about our history and the history of the game. So uh, if you have any thoughts about it, hit us up at hardwood underscore hustle. We'd love to have some conversation with you about it. And, you know, hey, I'm TJ, and we have two really special guests, Mono and, and, and Ken Friedman here today. Um, they've done an amazing job. And that is the Hardwood Hustle. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Hardwood Hustle, where we believe in the value of a coach. Make sure you subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts and be the first to know when we release our next episode. Don't forget, registration for PGC's summer camps is open and the first camp is already sold out. Make sure your players get a spot. Have them check out available dates and locations at pgcbasketball.com. And if you haven't attended as an observing coach, this summer may be the perfect opportunity to see what everyone's been talking about. Until next time, stay up to date and find us on Twitter and Instagram at Harwood underscore hustle.